Hi, it's Stella, again. Today is my birthday, so I get to curse. It's also a Orthodox birthday, so they get to curse too. This has been your obscenity warning. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am one of your hosts, Stephanie Butnick, here in the studio with Leah Leibowitz. Hello. And on the phone, we have Mark Oppenheimer, newly a dad of five. Oh, yeah. Hey, Just call me Tevya. Mark, <laughs> tell us everything. <laughs> Everything's fine. Um, it's true that as we record on Tuesday morning, uh, day after Labor Day, um, that... One might say, why am I not in the hospital with Sid? Uh, So, first of all, I had to come home late last night after our son was born because today was Anna's first day of kindergarten. And Sid was just despondent that she was missing it. And she said, look, you go home, get the kids off to school, take Anna to kindergarten. And then as long as I was like on the home front at 830, because the school's right near my house, it's like, why not phone in for an hour and, you know, touch base with you guys. And Sid was totally supportive. She said, look, I'll be in the hospital sleeping with the baby. Like, go do your thing. The J crew needs you. Now, listeners, I, I want you I want you to stop and take note and ask yourself really one simple question. <laughs> what other podcast host is coming live at you 12 hours after the birth of his fifth son? Does Malcolm Gladwell do that? I don't think so. Nope. No nope. other nope. podcast. Mark host. Maron. Nope. Mark Maron. No nope. freaking way. Ira Glass. Zach Shepard. No, uh-uh. I would never ever do that. This American Life. So not a chance. It's very fitting that you had your fifth child right before we recorded our birthday episode, which is what we are doing this week. Uh, we are officially three years old as a podcast. Woohoo! On the according to the Hebrew and the Gregorian calendars. <laughs> That's right. Calendar I. <laughs> So we have a very special episode, guys. Um, you both gave reflections on some segments that were meaningful to you that we've recorded over the years. Our producers, Josh, Jira, and Noah, offered some reflections and shared some of their segments. And we even hear from our bosses at Tablet, Wayne Hoffman and Alana Newhouse. So it's quite the party on this week's episode. And we will say this is not just an opportunity for us to reflect uh, on these past three years. It should really be a good opportunity for you, if you enjoy the show, to go back and listen to some of these episodes that we highlight in today's show and just, you know, have yourself a merry little unorthodox birthday. Although it should be said that it can be relatively painful for us to go back and listen to old episodes. Because, oh, totally. You know, I think, I think I speak for all three of us when I say that we feel like our podcast, uh, you know, mojo has has grown, has been amplified by by the love of all of you and by just getting better at it. And so while we're always thrilled when we get those emails from people who say, I just binge listened to all of your back catalog, that would be a painful thing for me to do because I, I hear all the mistakes. I hear all the ways that interviews could have gone better. I hear the ways that I know that, that I didn't know Stephanie Liel as well now. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm happy. I think we're good at three, you know. I also like barely talked episode one through 50. <laughs> so those episodes are obviously not as good. Mark, Mark <laughs> listens back and, you know, reminisces on the, on the time, the innocent days when he only had four children. That's right. Her life was so much simpler. That's right. But this episode actually isn't just old content. I actually take a little visit to see one of our favorite guests and have a little fun, fun segment with her. So that's coming up as well. So guys, get yourself a, a big hunk of birthday cake. Put on a party hat, sit back, and listen to this. Yom Huled at Padmea. <laughs> Hi, everyone. It's Alana, editor of Tablet. 
The episode I've been thinking about as this birthday approaches is the very first one, primarily because I remember my own skepticism about how this all would work. I gave Mark, Liel, and Stephanie the green light because, well, because there's almost nothing those three could ask of me that I would say no to, but I definitely had doubts. And I remember cringing while listening to that first episode during the interview with the very first Gentile of the week. Elna Baker, who had recently written a memoir about leaving the Mormon church. There's a part in the book where Elna mentions being hit on by a famous actor, who she pointedly does not name. And then Mark just flat out asks her who it is. First, I have to say, I read your book about fighting your libido in Manhattan while trying to stay true to your Mormon values. And I have a question for you. The scene in Nobu, where you're working as a hostess, yes, where... Um, it's this downtown sushi restaurant where stars are always come in and some movie star in his 60s tried to fill you up. Who was it? After a brief second, she just answers him. You know, I it's been it's so funny. I used to never say it, but I don't I don't care anymore. It was. A few minutes later, Liel jumps into a mournful discussion about adulthood and turns it into a fun, funny and meaningful meditation on faith and transgression and coffee. Was there one small thing like that that really made an impact? Like one seemingly insignificant experience that really sort of made you think, huh, I want to be on that side of the ledger. Well, uh, co- coffee, I mean, that that's something I was like, oh, my hey, whole life no. would have been better. <laughs> like more than any other substance. And I really like coffee. The other thing I remember thinking was so bizarre was, uh, so when you're Mormon and uh, you grow up learning like the Holy Ghost. Every choice you make, you sort of have to run by the Holy Ghost. And it, it almost separates you from your own intuition. So it's like, oh, should I move to New York or Utah? And you pray and you listen and you're supposed to feel this sort of enlightened, like a happy feeling if it's a good thing and a bad feeling if it's a bad thing. And that's always just like the Holy Ghost guiding you. And so it'd been almost to the end of the year I hadn't felt that feeling in a very long time. And I smoked my first cigarette properly. And I just remember feeling like a, and I was like, the Holy Ghost. Ghost. (laughs) What? People can just, you could just create that with a cigarette. Yeah, the Holy Ghost is like, I've been trying to tell you for a really long, why do you think these things are so fucking fun? (laughs) And finally, Elna gets to ask the host a question, something she's always wanted to understand about the Jews. Now, you have to remember, this was the first time any of these conceits had been tried, so I was bracing for awkwardness, or worse. But what happened instead was that Stephanie offered an answer with wit and warmth and pop culture nods, but without failing to note the dark side of things. The one thing I'm curious, and I've always been really jealous about this, in that if you're Mormon and you stop going to church and you stop practicing the sort of tenets of Mormonism, the the actual faith kind of, they don't really let you say that you're Mormon anymore. And so when I left, I thought I would like immediately not be Mormon. But I realized like, I think like a Mormon, my my brain is wired the way I was raised. And I wish I could just still be like, yeah, I mean, I was I'm Mormon. Like a Mormon ish. Yeah. But I feel like uh, Jews are allowed to say that they're Jewish, even if you literally just because you're born, right? Jewish? Well, it's the genius of the cultural Jew. I have no idea who came up with it, but they're brilliant because you can sort of say, oh, yeah, I'm a cultural Jew. I have no like that doesn't mean anything, but it means that you are sort of inherently Jewish. There's something like, I think it really means like you like bagels and like sometimes Woody Allen movies or like you used to like. Hey, Woody we're not Allen allowed movies. to like Woody Allen. Movies. Yeah, I know we used to. But right. 
I also think Cosby there's the, the dark side of that, which is you're always not to sort of take this here, but like, you know, if there's a list of Jews somewhere, you're going to be on it, right? Like, it doesn't matter whether you go to temple or not, or you just go for the high holidays. I think there's like, there's a two, there's this deep seated worry of, you know, like, I'm always, you can't not be Jewish in a way. Um, and I wonder if that comes from centuries of oppression and being chased out of places. But I don't know. I feel like there's the two sides. You're like, oh, you know, I, I identify with a lot of Jewish things, even though I don't go to temple. But I, I don't buy the whole notion of the cultural Jew. By the end of that chat, I knew I had been wrong about the podcast, but ever so right about my colleagues. Happy birthday, guys. Love you. Hey there, Liel here, taking you back to episode 25 and to something that, well, happened. When we shuffle into the studio on Tuesday mornings and turn on the mics, something happens. It's not that we're playing characters on the show, we're still us, but a slightly exaggerated version of us. A version of us that knows that there are people out there driving their kids to school or jogging down the river or making dinner, and that... These people just want to be entertained. So we dial it up just a little, which in my case means being just a little more of the hard-headed, blunt, fight-ready, conservative Israeli than I am when the coffee runs out and the mics are turned off and normal life resumes. Often, it works out just fine. But on one occasion, well, it didn't. In January of 2016, we had Rebecca Vilkomerson on the show. She runs an organization called Jewish Voice for Peace, which strongly supports the BDS movement that singles out Israel for boycotts, divestment, and sanctions. She's close to people like Linda Sarsour, who I consider to be anti-Semitic, and her organization has sponsored events with Rasmia O'Day, who's a Palestinian terrorist convicted of murdering two young Israelis. In short, she's a person whose worldview I find morally appalling. And when she came into our studio, I had to decide how to deal with the situation. This is what I did. Well, let me then uh, add to to the hate file uh, with a question, not not a comment. We mentioned your daughters earlier. Uh, here's a question, and I do mean this in earnest. Uh, say, God forbid, uh, one of them came down with a grave illness, which was treatable uh, with a medicine manufactured in Israel. Does BDS still apply? There's a technical term for what I was doing just there. It's called being a giant asshole. I may not agree with Vilkomerson. I may find her ideas vile. But to invite her to the studio only to engage in the sort of tiresome and pointless verbal sparring you'd see in mindless and malicious swamps like CNN? What's the point in that? Unsurprisingly, Volkomerson herself felt very much the same way. In this situation where my daughter was dying and I need to get her medicine, no, I would not boycott. If that makes me a hypocrite, then I'm okay with that. Okay. But I also have to say that to, to, that, to ask that kind of question, which is like a really nitpicky, kind of irrelevant question that doesn't at all engage with the issues of what's happening in Israel, but tries to try, try to do a gotcha moment, seems to me really not quite fair. I... Look, 
I'll be honest. Listening to her, I felt the blood rushing to my head. I wanted to keep an open heart. I wanted to have a conversation or at least attempt one, but a more primitive instinct took over. A little devil on my shoulder telling me I could do nothing but shut this guest down with quips and insults. Like so. We all use our, you know, economic power to make choices, but that doesn't mean we all, all the time, have to boycott everything that we feel bad about. You, you do have to pick and choose. But in other words, we're singling out one country specifically for opprobrium. No, I, I mean, I, I think this is one... there was a name one... for that historically. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, you're funny. Yeah. Yeah. I, I strive. <laughs> so, the, was that your phone, Liel? It was. Turn off your phone. It was Netanyahu so, on the phone. Calling so, congratulate I mean, me for so, let... my good Hasbara work here. You're, yeah, you're, you're real brave. <laughs> It could have gone on forever. Rage is such an excellent autopilot. Thankfully, however, Mark intervened, taking the conversation where it always should have gone. So, no, wait, what was your question? Well, yeah, I want to go back to, I think Liel had a great question, which was the future Thank of Israel. You, and so, <laughs> so some people would say, look, if you have full, full Palestinian right of return, and then if you were to um, have what you would call full democratic rights for right. everyone living under Israeli rule, right, it would be... It would now or soon be a Muslim majority country, um, or that's certainly one possibility, right? It would cease to be a demographically Jewish state, right? Mm-hmm. Do you have confidence that it would be a safe haven for Jews in that if, if that happened? I does have, that worry you at all? It does worry me. I have I have hope. Do I find this answer of Volkomerson's convincing? No way. And I have no more sympathy or respect for her and her organization than I did before she walked into our studio. But I learned a great big lesson that day. A lesson I believe helped make unorthodox better and sure helped make me better too. The lesson is this. Just calm down and listen. We have real differences between us. That's true. Some of our differences are too great to bridge, and some are too meaningful to paper over. But if we're going to make it through this baffling, horrible, terrible, no-good moment in time, we have to learn how to talk to one another. Not in that silly and superficial way they teach you in preschool where everyone's encouraged to nod their head and agree. We can and should interrupt each other. God knows we do it on this podcast all the time. And we must ask difficult questions, even unpleasant ones. But if our end goal isn't to actually try and understand, and if we're not willing to give the other person the benefit of the doubt that her or his motives may be pure and noble, even or especially if they disagree with us, well, then there's really not that much hope. I love unorthodox so deeply and for so many reasons, but none perhaps greater than our ability to have precisely this sort of conversation, to bring together so many different people with so many different viewpoints and speak as friends do because we're all one big family, Jews and the folks who love them, and we have no other choice but to continue and be stuck here with each other for the rest of recorded history. So. Mazel tov to us on our third birthday. And like all good three-year-olds do, may this be the year that we, and that I in particular, learn to be even better listeners.
I'm Wayne Hoffman. I'm the executive editor of Tablet and also a sometime guest and one-time guest host and fan, longtime listener and fan of Unorthodox. Uh, I listen to Unorthodox every week at the gym. It gets me going in the morning. But the episode I picked is episode 121, which was a live show. So I saw it live. Hello, JCC Manhattan. I also then listened to it again at the gym. It was Judy Gold and Father James Martin, the Jesuit priest. I've seen Judy Gold perform many times over the years, usually either in stand-up comedy showcases or queer arts events. But this is the first time I'd seen Judy in this kind of atmosphere, particularly being paired with a Jesuit priest like Father Jim, which I thought was really an inspired choice and kind of says everything you need to know about unorthodox. Some of my favorite bits about uh, hearing the unorthodox host talk to Judy, I remember her talking about going to lunch with her grandmother, and she talks about ordering a BLT. Uh, This is what happened. My grandmother... Dorothy, who uh, was born in 1896, uh, she lived at the end of her life. She lived at the Hebrew Home for the Aged in uh, Connecticut. And one day I went there to have lunch with her. And we went to this place called Peterson's. And, um, you know, I get the usual Jew lunch. It's either, you know, tuna on rye, egg salad, no butter. And my grandmother says... I'd like a BLT. Don't tell your mother. And I, it shattered everything for me. I couldn't believe that there was this whole other side of the family that thought my mother was crazy, you know? I also love the part but, where she explains part of how she, she came to talk to Jewish mothers around the country was by tagging on this project she was doing to what she was doing for her comedy tours. So she was going all around the country doing her stand-up and while she would be in any particular city, she would call the local synagogue and say, are there any Jewish mothers who'd be willing to talk to me? And of course, there always were. And she would ask them what makes Jewish mothers uh, unique or distinctive from other mothers. And some of the answers she got, I thought were really terrific. There's one where she talks to one Jewish mother who says, the secret is we love our children more, which I love as a moment. It was really at the time when I became a Jewish mother and I thought, where do I fit into this world? Because I'm a lesbian, you know, and I don't want to be like my mother. And unfortunately, there's really, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. Okay, Okay, so what, what, what are the, like in my, in my family, I don't, I don't think I got the mold. Nobody cooks with garlic. People are generally on time. It's. You know, that is so not Jewish. That's not what it's, yeah, no. that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. What are the important data points? Like, what? Well, the if, first if question. If I go home and say to Sid, like, you know, Sid, you've got four kids. Are you Jew mothering them? What do right. I, what are the questions? Uh, do you know exactly where they are right now, what they are doing, and everything they ate today? That is, those would be the questions that you could answer. Um, she also gets it at a key idea where there's often a moment in episodes of Unorthodox where the guests ask the host questions. And usually it's a question about Judaism. But this time, Judy actually asked a more underlying question, which is, how did this whole thing get started? Whose idea was this? Uh, 
and we get back to the notion of it being Mark Oppenheimer's idea and everyone else groaning and feeling like we were along for the ride. We didn't want to say no to Mark. Uh, and of course, it turned into this wonderful thing. And Judy comes out and says that she wishes that she'd come up with this idea first. You know, I love this podcast. I, know, I have amazing. to say, I'm a fan of the podcast. Thank you. Um, this podcast loves you very yes. much. Oh, I, I, I can't believe I didn't think of this podcast. It's so annoying. I would have been like a really good. You would have killed. You, yeah, yeah, you would have. You yeah. could have. You could have replaced me. Or, 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 or Leo. Thank Why you. Why would you see? Only a woman would I know, say you I know, could as replace I, me. As yeah. I said it, I was like, these, lean these in. two are ugh. You don't need them. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna like you go out leaning of my way own out there soon, stuff. Yeah. So we can just do like our own. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think my favorite bit is toward the end. Judy is giving advice for anti-Semites or wannabe anti-Semites. If you're not anti-Semitic and you want to become anti-Semitic, go to Kosher Marketplace on Broadway between 90th and 91st, okay? It is every... I had a number! What? The number thing isn't working? Can I try? They, I mean, they want to try everything. I, it's so annoying. I want to kill myself in there. Yeah. But really, I think the most important part, the most inspired part of the episode is the pairing. It isn't always the specific guest. It's the specific guest in conversation with another guest. And having Judy Gold back-to-back with Father Jim is a terrific combination, not only because they're both very entertaining guests, but also because it's obvious from the outset that Judy is madly in love with Father Jim. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, Unorthodox. Noah Levinson here. Big fan of the podcast. Longtime editor. First time caller. Okay, so there's one moment from the past year that I really wanted to relive, and it's from episode 120, the big Q&A, that was back in January, and it came just a few weeks after another moment worth reliving. That was when Roy Moore, the right-wing Christian ideologue and alleged sex offender, lost the race for Jeff Sessions' vacant Senate seat in Alabama. Now, during the campaign, the candidate's wife, Kayla Moore, had responded to allegations of anti-Semitism by her husband with a defense as old as time. One of our attorneys is a Jew. We have very close friends that are Jewish, and we also fellowship with them. As you can imagine, the gotcha press ran wild with the soundbite, and many gleefully misreported that the Jew lawyer in question was a man named Richard Jaffe, who had previously represented the Moore's son and who campaigned for Judge Moore's opponent, Doug Jones. In fact, 
As Mrs. Moore told the Alabama local, the Jewish lawyer she had in mind was one Martin Wisnotsky. And the punchline here is that this Southern lawyer, in addition to being a Jew, is also a practicing Christian. So shortly after this news broke, Mark frantically contacted Mr. Wisnotsky and interviewed him over Skype. And even though I'm really not proud of the audio quality here, this interview contains some of my favorite unorthodox moments from this year. To defend her husband against charges of anti-Semitism, she said, one of our lawyers is a Jew. Now, is that you, Martin? I, I think that's uh, that's correct, yes. And and I had no idea the uh, intense interest uh, that, that, that people would take in that comment. Let's just get it out in the open. Are, are you Jewish? I am, yes. Parents are Jewish, Jewish on both sides? Grandparents as well. Yes, going back to Eastern Europe. All right. Um, but you now also are a Christian, yes? Absolutely. All right. So tell me a little bit about that journey. How were you brought up as, what was your Jewish upbringing like? And then how did you become a Christian? Well, we were very consciously Jewish, but that was not connected to a belief in God. So I had an experience. I was 33 years old and someone uh, prayed for me. It was a gypsy woman out in the state of Hawaii. She was plying her trade looking for tourists that she could uh, get money from by telling them their fortune. But as it turns out, she uh, also was a believer in Jesus. And uh, she sat me down and she prayed for me and she said, Jesus, take away his sins. And that was uh, God's moment. Uh, as an academic, I went out to find the book that could explain it, got, got a Bible, and I opened the pages and I heard the voice of God. I recognized it. I could recognize that voice of righteousness. And at that point, I wanted to know who it was. It took a while, about seven years, I finally became established as a Christian. When Kayla invokes you as a Jewish friend of hers, um, a lot of Jews feel there's a kind of slipperiness when uh, conservative Christians talk about uh, ethnically Jewish people as um, who are now Christian as Jews. Do you? How do you feel about that charge? That there's something dishonest about her putting you forward as a Jewish friend. Well, I am Jewish, so there's nothing uh, dishonest about that. I'm a Jewish Christian, and I'm not the only one. And there are other Jewish atheists. Are they not Jewish? And, and in fact, you know, Jesus was Jewish. The Old Testament is, of course, completely Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish. Paul, uh, the writer of the epistles, was Jewish. How much more of a Jewish book do you want? I'm Jewish, and I'm a Christian, so I happen to be a hybrid, and that's the way it is. Okay. <laughs> so I guess final question, what are what are the Moors like? What are Kayla and Roy like? Well, people, he takes his, he takes his faith uh, very seriously, lives according to it. And I've, I've always found him to be a gentleman and also uh, a very good student of the law. So it was, it was a pleasure to work with him and with the rest, rest of the staff there. Do you think that Roy Moore did anything wrong with any of those teenage girls? The, uh, the charges of criminal acts, I don't believe, but they're not credible to me. And whether uh, he dated uh, women who were in their late teens when he was about 30 years old, uh, I don't think that's, uh, that's, that's an issue. Let's put a finer point on it. I mean, does it concern you ethically? If you knew someone who was 30 now who was saying, I want to ask out a 16-year-old, how would, would you would you counsel him in any direction? Hmm. Well, I guess I'll pass on that question. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Well, uh, Mr. Wachnowski, thank you so much uh, and, and for your time. I really appreciate it. So from the bottom of my heart, happy third birthday, Unorthodox. My, how you've grown. And um, thank you for all of the great fellowshipping. Fake news would tell you that we don't care for Jews. Don't care for Jews. Don't care for Jews. So I just want to set the record straight while they're here. One of our attorneys is a Jew. Now, when you say he's a very Jewish guy, what do you mean by that? Oh, you say some of your best friends. Yeah, no, no, no. That came out kind of bad. I, I'm not disgusted by the Jewish part. We're going to make damaging remarks about candidate Roy Moore for a reward of between five thousand to seven thousand dollars. It's the it's the lying part that I was talking about. This dirty liar is a Jew. Wish man. Say the whole word. We have very close friends that are Jewish and rabbis, and we also fellowship with them. Hey guys, it's Shira one of the producers here. And I want to take us back to episode 137 with Yassi Klein-Halevi, who came on just as he had, he had just published his latest book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Now, I'll admit that, especially when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I find it hard to get inspired or excited about new books. I grew up in a fiercely Zionist home in a modern Orthodox Jewish community. And for a long stretch of my life, this was my cause. But after years where I, I lived in Israel, I organized tons of lectures, helped lead tours of Palestinian villages, worked at Middle East think tanks, I became dispirited. I mean, the talking points on all sides rarely change. The basic parameters of a two-state solution have been set for decades. And with every passing day, it seems the conflict only gets more entrenched. The total lack of trust on both sides only grows wider, and often for reasons that are really well-deserved. It's hard to imagine any new component to the conversation. I have tremendous respect for Yessi Klein-Halevi, who I've known as a teacher, and I was moved by his book and his interview with us, not for his innovative solutions to the problem, but for something kind of even more striking, which was his continued commitment to Israel and his, his faith that hope for an eventual solution is not futile. I think I recognize that in all the ways that I had walked away, he was never going to do that. And he knew it. I moved to Israel, and this is clear to me now, with the growing alienation of American Jews toward Israel, I moved to Israel in part to, so that I would not have the option of American Jewish privilege. American Jewish privilege in relation to the state of Israel is to walk away. Oh, I'm alienated. You're pissing me off. You, you know, I, I'm, you're not behaving the way that I want you to behave. Well, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, the Jews 
in Israel, whether their parents or grandparents came from Poland or Morocco or Ethiopia or India, they don't have that option of walking away. And so I wanted to throw my lot in with that part of the Jewish people that doesn't have the privilege of walking away from this amazing story. We're stuck there. I wanted, I wanted to be stuck in that story because I think this is the most extraordinary moment in Jewish history. And critically, and this is, this is what I think made his interview so distinctive, he doesn't sugarcoat or downplay his own bias. He knows that his Zionist narrative has had immoral implications for Palestinians, and he doesn't pretend otherwise. And the challenge for me personally, but I think for us as a people, is how do we speak from the place of, this is our story, this is our, th these are our security needs, and at the same time, there's, a, there's a, another people here that has been shattered. And shattered as a consequence, not intentionally, but nevertheless as a consequence of my return home. And I have to come to terms with that. And he also knows that despite the emotional weight, sacrifices have to be made about places that he loves. But if we're going to share this land, and I believe that we have no choice but to share this land, partition has been on the table almost from the beginning of this conflict. Neither side wants partition. I don't want it. I, I hate partition. I hate the thought of dragging my fellow Israelis out of homes that they built, that, uh, that their children were born in, that we have as much a right to in principle as, uh, as Tel Aviv, maybe more. Maybe, maybe we, have, we have a deeper claim to, uh, to Judea and Samaria. And for me, it's Judea and Samaria. It is not occupied territory. It isn't even the West Bank. But for my Palestinian neighbor, all of this land between the river and the sea is Palestine, including what, including what is now the state of Israel. I have to come to terms with that. And my neighbor has to come to terms with my claim. And so reluctantly, painfully, the only alternative that I see to another hundred years of war is the alternative that both sides don't want, which is partition. But most of all, he's still in the game. And even if, you know, P and I don't see eye to eye on all things politics necessarily, which is definitely true, I was really glad we had him on the show. And I was really glad to have sat for even a, a moment with his hope. Don't let any of us off the hook. Don't let Israel off the hook uh, when, we're, uh, when we're expanding settlements. And don't let the Palestinian leadership off the hook when it raises one generation after another of its own people to see Israel and the Jewish people as liars, thieves, colonialists, without any indigenous presence in the land. And most of all, don't let yourselves off the hook. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Hey guys, it's Mark, and I want to tell you a little story. Last fall, I was in Morgantown, West Virginia, having lunch a few hours before a scheduled talk that I was going to give at the local university. And I met this guy in the restaurant where I was eating, who was named Joe Hample, and it turned out he was the rabbi of Tree of Life Congregation, the only non-Orthodox congregation, there's a little Chabad house, in Morgantown, West Virginia. And I said, hey man, as long as I'm here, can I interview you? And he said, sure, come on over to my synagogue. So, so I did, after lunch was finished up, I drove over to Tree of Life and I took out my iPhone. And I, I ended up with this wonderful interview with, with him. And look, I always love interviewing rabbis. Um, and it's because of all of the people who do Jewish communal work, uh, the, the, the Hebrew school teachers, the cantors, the social workers, all of them, the rabbis are the ones whose life is most public. I mean, if a rabbi yells at his kid in the supermarket and somebody from the congregation sees it, oy, fault. You know, if a rabbi goes through a divorce, if a rabbi, you know, is seen pulled over on the side of the road, even just getting a speeding ticket, if a rabbi gets a point of Torah wrong, their lives are so public. They, they put themselves out there. They are so at risk. And I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage to be that kind of public figure, especially when you're kind of an introvert the way it turned out Joe Hample was. So what I ended up with was, was a perfect interview to help me explain to people what it is that I love about rabbis. Joe Hample had this wit and this wisdom and this maturity that made you understand how it is that somebody would undertake a job so difficult and managed to do it with such great aplomb. Here's me with Joe Hample. I was a systems analyst at Wells Fargo Bank in San Francisco for 20 years. You know, the Dilbert comic strip? Yes. That was my life. So 20 years of that, you know, it was decent pay, interesting people, and pleasant offices, a fun life, but I had a sense of no impact. I wanted to make a difference. So um, uh, on my 47th birthday, my father of blessed memory called me from New York. He says, are you happy at the bank? I said, not really. He said, what would you like to do? I said, I think I'd like to go to rabbinical school. I was very involved in my uh, hip little down to inner city synagogue there in San Francisco, Sharzahov. I was there for you know, a decade plus uh, as a major player in the synagogue. So I said, I think I'd like to go to rabbinical school. He said, why don't you do it? I said, I'd do it if I was younger. He said, you are younger. <laughs>
His first job was at Pelican Bay, a maximum security prison in way northern California. And he said that while it wasn't ultimately for him, it did have its interesting moments. So I did that for a couple of years. And I'll say this for inmates. They're a very appreciative congregation. No matter what you do, it's probably the high point of their day. And they'll read anything you give them. They have a lot of time on their hands. You know, in this congregation, I could give everyone a book about the Talmud. No one would ever read it. In prison, they'll all read it. What else have they got to do? It's very rewarding for a rabbi. Were there, were there Jews? Well, there were hardly any real Jews. There were 3,200 inmates. But they're bank robbers and drug kingpins. How many Jews? Um, you know, you find Jews in a white-collar prison, uh, uh, you know, a man of security. No, there were hardly any real Jews. But you have to understand that religion's the only hobby allowed in prison. So naturally, they make the most of it. There are religions in prison that you never heard of before. Everybody, you know, it'd be like they'd all been through 50 different religions. And they'd be like, oh, I hear we have a rabbi now, Rocky. Let's try Judaism. So I had, you know, more and more inmates in my services every week. Now, at Pelican Bay, fully half the population is in solitary. So they couldn't come to me. I had to go to them. But of those who were uh, in, you know, cell blocks where you're allowed to do some activity, they could come to the chapel. So in the A chapel, I had services on Wednesday and in the B, B chapel on Thursday or whatever it was, the A yard and B yard. Um, and uh, they were fascinated. Um, uh, and there were, of course, there's lots of other, but there's Protestant, there's Catholic and Muslim. But I, you know, helped all of the different religious groups coordinate their activities. There didn't happen to be an imam at Pelican Bay when I was there. So I had to coordinate Ramadan. Like, what do I know about Ramadan? I Googled it. So eventually, Rabbi Joe decided to move on. So, the, you know, I had continued to apply for jobs uh, uh, at Main Street, you know, normal synagogue type jobs and eventually one came through you know i was old and gay i wasn't the most desirable uh, uh rabbi for people to hire but this was a college town a couple of the people on the selection committee had gay family members and they insisted that i be given a chance they liked me and the rest is history and you know some people left when i was hired and they're entitled to their opinion some of them have come back and some not left because you were gay i guess so Oh, well. Um, what's, what's the hardest thing about being here and what's the best? Um, well, the hardest thing about being clergy, I mean, the essence of being clergy is being nice to everyone, whether you like them or not. That's much harder than parsing the scriptures and much more important. No one would know or care if I confused Abraham with Moses, but they'll sure know if I confuse Harry Klein with Howie Stein. I'll never live it down. Um, I'm not even particularly an extroverted person, but this is a, a profession where you have to be extroverted or fake it 24-7. It takes a lot out of me. You know, if you're, if you're in the galoshes business, your raw material is rubber. And if you're in the paperclip business, your raw material is steel. But if you're in the religion business, your raw material is your own personality. You're constantly processing yourself into your product. There's something, there's something, um, uh, uh, um, cannibalizing. Thank you. There's something cannibalistic about it. Um, but, but that's what the job is, you know. 
Rabbi Joe had mentioned earlier in our interview that he really loved singing, that he loved teaching and he loved talking, but that he also loved singing. And I said, would you sing something for me? And so he found this song. So that's the meaning is, uh, under Yidla's cradle, there stands a snow white goat. The goat has been on a business trip. This will be your calling too. You will deal in raisins and almonds. Sleep yet a little sleep. Hey, it's Josh, one of the producers, and the episode I wanted to discuss was the one with the mitzvah tank, number 143. From essentially the first minute I joined the team, I kept hearing about how they wanted to do an episode from the mitzvah tank. As a resident reform-raised secular atheist with a love of the culture, I was mildly embarrassed to admit I didn't even really know what that was. So, of course, someone explained that it was the Winnebago those Chabad guys drive around in and use as a base. They try to get Jewish men to put on tefillin, and they give Jewish women Shabbat candles. Well, I knew what that was. I just didn't realize it had such a militant name. Army references and faith-based sexism aside, the thing that always made me feel really uncomfortable about the Chabad interaction was that I felt incredibly judged as a Jew, like they were sizing me up as they were asking. And of course they were, as Dovid Margolin freely admitted to us. When you're doing it regularly, you start breaking people down to the different categories. So you have the person who will say... No, I'm not Jewish, and then come back to you a minute later. Yes, I am Jewish, and <laughs> and then and then you have the person, you know, with the guilty, you know, deer in the headlights look. And first of all, all of the, all of that is is fine. Like like the the kind of, part of it is the call to say, hey man, you're Jewish, and people very often in our lives don't have the opportunity even to think about that. So yeah, if if I just startled them and said, hey, are you Jewish? And they reacted some one way or the other, they're going to think about the fact that they're Jewish, whatever that implies. The goal of each interaction is to do a mitzvah. Okay, so they admit it, but their goals were a little different than maybe I understood. That said, I also felt judged that they viewed me as a lesser Jew because my practices and beliefs don't match with theirs. Stephanie kind of read my mind at that point and asked Mordechai Lightstone a pointed question. Is, is there an assumption, though, that you have the answer, right? You figured it out and you're trying to sort of not save this person, to use such, not to use such Christian terminology, but like you see someone who is probably secular and is the idea that you are sort of trying to get them to see that you, that you know the right way to be Jewish? Yeah, that. I'd say nothing of the sort. I mean, it's it's not an act of condescension or looking down at the person or someone feeling superior to them. It's that we both are really the same. There is no difference. Moses, you, me, whoever it is, you know, uh, Yesel the Ganev, you know, Joseph the Thief, we're all, you know, one Jewish people. And it's not that one of us is superior or better to the other of them. Uh, the other. It's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to tap in how we are all the same. Well, okay then. But what about other folks that might not even be as Jewish as me? I mean, there are worse averas than putting on tefillin with somebody who is not halakhically Jewish. So if, if, you're, if you're halfway through putting on tefillin, the guy's like, oh, this is cool, you know, my dad is Jewish. Well, halakhically, he's not Jewish, right? There's not, there, you're, you're, you're not, this is not the worst thing in the world. 
I think a lot of this hinges on the Hasidic understanding of what a mitzvah is. That a mitzvah is related to the Aramaic word safta, which means to connect. That when you do a mitzvah, you're forming a, a bond between yourself, between the person doing the mitzvah, and the Almighty God, the Creator. And that when you do that mitzvah, you're, the two of you are connecting, and that draws down energy and God, godliness into this world through that physical act at that moment in time. And therefore, the way we approach mitzvahs is not that it's some sort of, you know, you know, even like a, a long game or something like that. Each mitzvah is a world to itself. So if I've got this right and I'm a Jew and they have a chance to talk to me and maybe even perform a mitzvah with me, that's good enough for them. They're not questioning my practices, beliefs and so on, just that I'm technically a Jew. So when they say, are you a Jew? They really mean, are you a Jew technically? That works for me. And that's really what left an impression on me after hanging out with them for a few hours. Now, if only we could work on the rest of Jews to get them to stop being so damn judgy. Oh, and Mordechai, if you're listening, I'm still not going to put on tefillin. But next time I will stop and talk. I'm Stephanie Butnick, one of your hosts on Unorthodox. One of the most rewarding things about doing this show is getting to meet the amazing people we call our guests. Some of them are in and out of the studio and that's that, but there are others who have a way of sticking around. That's especially exciting when those people happen to be incredible chefs who make delicious food. Molly Yeh, a food blogger and cookbook author, was a guest on episode 79 all the way back in February 2017. She brought us homemade sprinkle hamantashen and told us about her Chinese and Jewish cooking influences. I want to go there and I want to make the things that you make in the pretty pictures. You want her serenity and her hamantashen. <laughs> she also told us how moving from Brooklyn to a farm on the North Dakota-Minnesota border with her fifth-generation sugar beet farming husband changed her life in one really major way. It became a whole lot harder to find a good bagel. Final question, what have you done to solve the bagel problem in your life? Um, I have a bagel teacher in town. Uh, he recently moved. That's why you're actually here in New York. Oh, you but mean in North Dakota? He, yeah, he recently moved from uh, Pennsylvania. He's a professor at the UND. And this summer I'm going on a fishing trip to Alaska for salmon. And so I'm going to go get some salmon. I'm going to make some lox. And then Dave, my bagel friend, is going to come over and teach me how to make. After the taping, we got lunch together. I was delighted, but not entirely surprised, to discover that she is as unbelievably kind and cheery in real life as she had been on the air. She is completely genuine. We stayed in touch, and a few months later, I emailed her and asked a totally and completely insane question. Would she maybe, possibly, make my wedding cake? And that's how Molly Ye ended up in my wedding last year, where she decorated the most beautiful cake I have ever seen. There were sprinkles, so many sprinkles, and even a marzipan cat on there, so that my beloved cat Stevens could be part of the festivities too. I told you she was nice. We checked back in with Molly on episode 140, to talk about her new Food Network show, Girl Meets Farm. You can watch it on foodnetwork.com. She makes challah and brisket and shakshuka from her farm kitchen. In August, a week after the last Girl Meets Farm episode of the season aired, my husband Ben and I flew to Minneapolis and then connected to Grand Forks to visit Molly and her husband Nick on their farm, which really is right on the Minnesota-North Dakota border. Molly and Nick were wonderful hosts. There were baked goods appearing fresh out of the oven at seemingly all times, and Nick took Ben out on his combine to show him the wheat harvest. It was all fun and games until I admitted to Molly that I had never made challah. Her jaw dropped, and she said, we must make some challah. 
Luckily, I had my recording equipment on hand to document the adventure. I feel like I was better at this before we were recording. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I can't believe this is your first loaf of challah. Yes, this is my first time making challah. It's really embarrassing. But you know how to braid hair. I do know how to braid hair, yes. And that's so the I hardest can... part. Yeah, is it, uh, yeah, um, don't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. No, no, no. Okay, here, let's just see. Okay, so I like to start my braid from the middle because that makes the shape more even throughout. Okay, so then you braid no, no. it. Yeah, yeah, perfect. And then you braid it going out to the right, and then on the other side, you're gonna have to braid it underneath, though. Like this. Um, almost. Wait, how do you braid? <laughs> now I can't remember that. This is like really weird hair. And then when you get to the end, just pinch the edges together. This is very like satisfying. See why I do this all day? Yes. And then I, I like to give it a little hug. And now we'll transfer these little guys to our pants. I feel like that little nubbin I'm needs to tuck this under. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So these are gonna rise for another half hour or so. Well, then we're gonna do an egg wash and then we're gonna bake them. When you're on a farm, you don't reach into the fridge to find eggs you bought at a supermarket. You go outside to the chicken coop. So do you think there are going to be eggs under this chicken? I hope so. Come on, little chicky. No eggs. What about that one in the corner? It looks like she's laying. She's being such a poo head. No eggs today. We got eggs yesterday. Yeah. Really good. So can you explain like where what we're where we are right now? This is where Nick's great great grandpa Bernt came over from Norway. This is where he settled. And so Hagens have been on this farm for a little over 140 years. No visit to Hagen Farm would be complete without seeing Molly and Nick's cat Sven. Sven lives in the workshop and has a very important role on the farm besides being adorably photogenic. Hi, Sven. How's your Sunday going? No, he's wiping his face against our new microphone. He's <laughs> funny. <laughs> because we have these big grain bins, um, you know, if any if any pests get into them, that's really bad. So Sven and his brother Oli catch them, and it's really important. Okay, okay, enough cats. Time to get back to our holla. Okay, so I'm really curious to know what you thought Hala was before you actually made it. So yeah, I admitted to you when I got here, when we got here, you were just like making loaves of Hala, like casually, making chocolate Hala's. And I was, I was like, oh yeah, same. <laughs> and then I admitted that I've never actually made Hala or seen someone make Hala except on the internet and on videos. And I said that's, that's more crazy than you not having a mezuzah. Yeah, it's really embarrassing. But I just, I always just sort of thought that you needed like a stand mixer and you needed all these things that I don't have. But as I've learned, that's false. You can just knead it by hand. And actually, so do you know that Blue Zones book? The book about the areas of the world where it's the highest concentration of people who live over 100. In one of the areas, kneading sourdough bread is a regular activity for these hundred-year-old people and they think that that's that like kind of gentle physical activity is one reason that they've stayed so healthy and so I'm kind of half and half sometimes I'm just 
being lazy and I need to need my holiday in the KitchenAid and then I can just stand there and look at Instagram. But on healthy days, I need it by hand. And then I think about how I'm gonna live to 100 because I'm doing that. It was really soothing. And now the best part of making challah, toppings. Okay, so what do you want to put on yours? Sprinkles? I want to add sprinkles on mine. Okay, I'm going to do sesame seeds on mine. Okay, that's and much so, more like measuring. Oh, I feel bad. I, I did the egg wash. You were so good at the egg wash I, know, I did the other day. Do you day. want to put no, more egg wash really, on it? No. Okay, so now that we have our egg wash on, we can sprinkle our toppings on. And okay, so I'm going to put some in my hand. So you're gonna, yeah, and just sprinkle them all over the challah. It looks really pretty with sesame seeds. I like that we like skipped steps one like I didn't just make a regular challah my first time. The dough was very basic and you can do anything you want with it though. What was it that you invented? Jalapeno? Ha, yeah, jalapeno. Hala, jalapeno. Jalapeno, jala. Because well, we picked jalapenos earlier from your garden. Mmm. Do you think that you'll make a loaf I would, of yes, I would really like before to. Before you get a mezuzah? <laughs> is there any like strata? Okay. Oh my god, this is beautiful. That's very pretty. So I'm gonna take a boomerang of this. This is like Really fun. Time to take the challah out of the oven and try it. Wait, this is beautiful. It smells so good. Can I touch it? It's going to be very hot, but you can. Oh my god, it's so, like, it's like crispy. It's really nice that the sprinkles held their shape. I also like the ones that melted and sort of made like a tie-dye effect. Tie-dye, yeah. Okay, so, what we, oh so let's just rip it apart. Ooh. We're going to check here. Do you want crossed or do you want in oh, I want this piece. It's the most beautiful piece I've okay. ever seen. It like Ben, see, which piece do you want? Crust. Oh my god, it's really good. Do you want butter? Hot buttered challah is yeah, the best thing in this so. life. Where is it? So one thing that you want to make sure to do when you're making challah is to take your butter out of the refrigerator to soften so that you can spread it easily. Oh, it's so good. So, I don't know. I have no questions. I really like it. There's butter just like dripping down my hands right now. So what's Molly's verdict on my challah making skills? Yay! Yay, challah! Way to go. That's the prettiest first challah I've ever seen. Dayenu. What a trip. I still dream of that challah and can't wait to try making it again on my own. Thanks to Molly and Nick for welcoming us on their farm, in their home, and in their kitchen. You can find Molly's challah recipes, potato challah, honey whole wheat challah, marzipan challah, scallion pancake challah, and so much more at mynameisye.com. That's mynameisyeh.com. Happy birthday, Unorthodox. Hey, J. Crew, our wonderful listeners. Thanks for being with us for three years. I got to head back to the hospital to hang out with my newborn son, but I'm really glad that I had the chance to spend some time with you first. As ever, we love hearing from you. Send your comments to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. We read every letter and listen to every message. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We often come to you live to book us or to advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross at jcross with a K at tabletmag.com. And of course, you need to wear and carry Unorthodox too. All of our swag available at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sputnik. Join our Facebook group. 
Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Shira Talushkin, and Noah Levinson, who is also our editor. Editing assistance by Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Rachel Cowan from the great beyond. We miss you. We record at Argo Studios, which is a little bit older than three. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.